Well, good morning, everyone. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Cross Point Baptist Church this morning. We're glad you're here today. We get a special day. You know what today is? Why it's a special day? Because we are here in God's house together, able to worship the Lord. So we get to do that today. Uh, Pastor Scott, as you know, I'm not Pastor Scott, so he's gone to a Kentucky Mountain Mission this weekend, and he's preaching it down in one of those uh, churches in the holler, I'll say, and uh, I hope he finds his way back after that. So he, he's down there, he's had some, some meetings and things down at the, at the camp, and so we want to pray for Pastor Scott as he's uh, down there. But we're thankful that you're all here today, we're going to uh, worship with singing and, and uh, lift our uh, voices unto him. And then Brother Brad is going to uh, bring forth uh, the word today. So I challenge you to, to be engaged and listen to uh, the message. I'm sure Brad is, is prepared and, and ready to go to deliver uh, God's word today. So um, I want to mention as we, as we get started, though, uh, we want to commemorate and, and remember the 9 uh, 11 anniversary uh, yesterday. You watch the TV at any length, you've seen all kinds of specials on it on almost all the channels. So um, we want to remember uh, those that were uh, the families of those that were killed in that tragic uh, attack, as well as the soldiers, uh, families of those soldiers that have lost their lives and, and all and wounded and all those things over the 20 years of time that, that we've uh, served in. Uh, that's this war against terrorism and we want to uh, remember those families and the soldiers that we have uh, serving even today and we have four of those folks uh, just from this church we have Jake Thompson and we have uh, Juan Flores and we have Jake Lawson and we have um, Johnny Prim and I want us to, to take a moment and just quiet our hearts and have a moment of silence to remember our nation, our president, the leadership that we have. The Lord knows that we need him. And then pray for those four young men that are serving our country from this church. So let's take a moment, and then after that, we'll have a word of prayer. I will, and then we'll begin with some singing with worship. So let's pray in a moment of silence. Heavenly Father, we thank you for being our God, for giving us direction, for giving us uh, your spirit as we walk through this life. Father, we pray for the families of those that were tragically killed in the 9-11 attack. We pray for the soldiers uh, and the families uh, of the lost uh, loved ones uh, in that war against terrorism throughout the years. Lord, many people injured 
and uh, they never have the normal life that they need, but Lord, you can use them and you can reach them through your spirit. Father, we pray for those four young men that from this church that are serving, Jake Thompson and Jake Lawson and Juan Flores and Johnny Pratt. We ask that you would just keep them safe, guide their hearts, lead them where you'd want to be, help them to be the, the man that represents you in all their actions. Father, we just pray for our nation. We pray that you would do a work in the hearts of people, that they would turn to you. Lord, after 20 years of time, many people have fallen away from the unity that we had as a country. But Lord, all of that is only to serve the purpose of bringing other people to Jesus Christ. So we pray that you would just use your spirit using in our lives that we might be able to reach out to our friends and neighbors and those that that we can to reach them with the gospel. So Father, we pray that you would just be with our president and the leadership. Lord, we ask that you would lift them up. Help them to see your will in all that goes on. Father, we pray now today for this service. Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would just be with us today as we worship you in song, and, and we pray that our hearts would be in tune with yours, that we'd be able to lift our voices up, and Lord, that we would be able to hear your message taught to us in singing, as well as in the preached word uh, from Brother Brad. May we apply it to our lives today, that we could be changed, and Lord, if there be one in our midst that doesn't know you as Savior, that even today... They might come to know Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. Lord, we thank you for what you're going to accomplish. We give you the praise. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with us as we worship this morning? We believe.
Father, Lord, we gather together as your children, Lord, because you have paid our ransom. You have set us free. You've given us a new life, Lord. We are so grateful for the opportunity to be here, that you have been with us this entire week, Lord. We just uh, lift our voices to you and praise God, recognizing who you are and what you've done. Father, may you receive glory and honor from our worship this morning. Be with uh, Brother Brad as he opens your word. God, give us ears to hear and a heart that's willing to obey. In Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning. I'm going to do some housekeeping here so I can get everything set up. 
It's a privilege and an honor to present God's Word. It always is. Uh, I always want to begin by thanking Pastor Scott. As Pastor Roger mentioned, we need to pray for him. He's down in Kentucky, and um, just want to pray that um, everything goes well, that he gets back safely, and that he has a productive trip. As always, I'm, I'm humbled to have the opportunity to present God's Word to you this morning. Um, thankful to be able to present it to, to everybody here in the room and those on Facebook Live as well. But the Word of God is very clear um, that teaching and preaching the Scriptures is never to be taken lightly. Um, every time that I've had the opportunity to do so, I've always done it prayerfully and carefully. And I've especially done that today. Um, I always try to study and prepare with careful, painstaking precision um, using the tools that I have in my biblical tool belt. But this morning, I want you to understand that um, this is a message that is a little bit more difficult to deliver. We're going to be discussing a, a topic that's not easy to think about. It's not easy to ponder. It's not easy to discuss. It can be disturbing, even quite unsettling. As I've studied and prayed about delivering this message, I'm convinced that it's God's intention for this topic to be presented this morning. That's why I'm presenting it. Even though it may be disturbing and unsettling, I urge everybody who's here and everybody listening online to think about what we are about to, to read about from the scriptures. I feel compelled to deliver this message because I feel compelled compelled to share with you the full counsel of God's word, especially the warnings that may be difficult to hear, but they're important for us to hear and to consider. Without going on a tangent, suffice it to say that in today's typical dialogue and discourse, I fear that perhaps we don't speak enough about today's message. Turn with me to Mark chapter 9. Spencer, you may want to turn down the microphone a little bit. Mark chapter 9, verses 43 through 48. This is Jesus speaking. He says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands and to go to hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter into life maim rather than having two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. As we consider what you have for us, I pray that we will have very attentive hearts, listening ears, eyes to see what you have for us. Lord, I'm convinced that this is a message that's intended for everyone here. I pray that you will help us to process these things and to make decisions for Christ accordingly decisions to follow Christ, to obey Christ, 
and to glorify Christ and to spread the message and the gospel of Christ everywhere that we go. We thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Hell is a word that is very flippantly and carelessly used in today's world. It's used in people's daily conversations. Um, if you turn on the TV or look at any kind of media on your phone, um, it's practically ubiquitous all over the place. You'll, you'll see and hear the word hell. Uh, it's used as profane tirades when people callously tell someone to go to hell. It's even used in more genteel parlance uh, as people refer to their day's events as being an experience from hell. But even when someone says, my suffering is like hell, or war is hell, I think we're vastly underestimating the actual horrors of hell. The title of today's message is The Horrors of Hell. The Bible has a lot to say about hell. Unfortunately, I think non-Christians talk about hell more than Christians do these days. That's a problem. That's a real problem. Because hell is a real place, and it's a real place that real people go to every day. And as Christians, if we're not telling people about hell and warning people about hell, then we're not doing our jobs. While the word hell is commonly heard and spoken about daily, I don't think we think about it daily. I don't think it's part of our thought process, our motivation to prevent people from going to hell. In the four Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there is one person who speaks more about hell than anyone else. It's a dominant part of everything that he discussed. It's a dominant part of everything that he preached. That person is Jesus Christ. While all the New Testament writers spoke about hell, the one voice that speaks about hell the loudest and the most is our Savior, the one who came to earth to rescue us from hell, has a lot to say about it. So I think we need to be talking about it. We need to be thinking about it. We need to process this message today. If hell was a dominant theme of what Jesus preached and taught, then I think it should be something that we teach and preach as well. Before we look at this passage in Mark and a few others this morning, I want to familiarize ourselves with what our church believes about hell. So if you've looked on our website, I was going to have Spencer navigate to it, but it's a little hard to, to do on our screen. And by the way, you may notice some glitches with the screens going black. Uh, we've, we're replacing some equipment. We need to run some new cables. Uh, we've got everything hooked up correctly, but we need some HDMI cables. So you can pray about that. We're we're looking to get those run, but that's why occasionally you'll see a screen go black and then it'll come back. On our church's website, if you go to crosspointbc.com and you go to the Who We Are link, underneath that, there's a link to What We Believe. You should see a, a link then to our Articles of Faith. On that page, we have published our church's 23 Articles of Faith. These are the truths the official documented um, truths that members of Cross Point Baptist Church adhere to. 
when we sign the church covenant, we become an official member of the, of the church. All these articles of faith are spiritual doctrines and tenets that we believe to be true based on our understanding and interpretation of the Word of God, the Holy Bible. We have articles of faith that document what we believe about the scriptures themselves, about God himself, about Jesus Christ, about the Holy Spirit, about salvation, and other critical spiritual concepts. Under those articles of faith, in Roman numeral 18, we have what we believe about the eternal state. Here's what it says. We believe in the bodily resurrection of all men or people, the saved to eternal life, and the unsaved to judgment and everlasting punishment. We also believe that the souls of the redeemed are at death, absent from the body and present with the Lord, where in conscious bliss they await the first resurrection when spirit, soul, and body are reunited to be glorified forever with the Lord. We further believe that the souls of unbelievers remain after death in conscious misery until the second resurrection, when, with soul and body reunited, they shall be cast into the lake of fire, not to be annihilated, but to suffer, suffer everlasting conscious punishment. Now, we list several scriptures to corroborate and explain why we believe those things, including uh, many passages from the Gospels and the epistles in the New Testament. Before we proceed, I want to very briefly clarify some terminology. Um, throughout the Bible, there are different words and phrases that are used to refer to hell and different things like that. I want to just briefly describe those because we're going to hear about a couple of those in the passages we consider this morning. The lake of fire. You heard that in the Articles of Faith. Lake of fire is a phrase used in Revelation 20 to describe the final destination of eternal punishment for all condemned, rebellious rejectors of God and his son, Jesus Christ. The lake of fire is the eternal state for all unbelievers before and after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the lake of fire is where all unbelievers will spend eternity. Now you have different words called uh, hell, Hades, and Sheol. They all refer to the same place. What was a bit hazy and unclear in the Old Testament about Sheol was made perfectly crystal clear in the New Testament. The souls of those who have already died and been condemned currently reside in hell, also referred to as Hades in the New Testament and Sheol in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And then there's also words Gehenna and Valley of Hinnom. These were Jewish references to hell. Since this valley was a site of horrific child sacrifices, it was eventually designated to be an abhorrent trash heap outside of Jerusalem. So this Valley of Hinnom, this never-ending burning of trash, became a visual metaphor that symbolized hell's eternally burning flames. So you have Lake of Fire, Hell, Hades, Sheol, Gehenna, Valley of Hinnom. They're all, they all fit under the umbrella of hell. So let's talk about that place. Hell, the lake of fire. It's a place of ruinous, hopeless, eternal suffering. So when we look at Mark chapter 9, again, verses 43 through 48, 
you have several references to hell. The fire that shall not be quenched. Their worm does not die. The fire is not quenched. It's mentioned over and over. This is one of the reference passages from our Articles of Faith about the eternal state. So Mark chapter 9 is, is one of those passages. The context of this passage shows Jesus instructing his disciples and warning them of certain things, including leading new converts into sin in verse 42. And then in verse 43, he warns them about the danger of minimizing the destructive and damaging power of sin. The graphic language that he uses is shocking. To hack off your arm, hack off your leg, hack off your foot, hack off your whatever. Pluck out your eyes. Let's briefly state what Jesus is not teaching here. Jesus is not teaching that self-mutilation, hacking off your limbs and plucking out your eyes, will prevent you from sinning. Why? Because your hands and your feet and your eyes don't have wills of their own. They're directed by your heart. Hacking off and plucking out, hacking off limbs and plucking out your eyes won't necessarily deal with your heart. What Jesus is trying to teach us here is something different. The reason Jesus uses this graphic imagery is to emphasize the earnest and extreme actions that you must undertake in order to recognize, address, and eliminate sin in your heart. That's what Jesus is saying here. Whatever it takes, deal with your sin. Don't let sin cause you to go to hell. He wants you to be warned that hell is a terrible place, a place that you do not want to end up in. He wants you to avoid it at all costs. The inescapable points that Jesus makes here involve how horrific hell is and how zealous we should be to avoid it. Jesus describes hell as a place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. This same phrase is used in Isaiah 66, 24. It refers to God's judgment on the condemned sinners who rebel against God. And they'll pay for that rebellion through all of eternity. So why worms? Well, worms are associated with all kinds of nasty, ghastly, disgusting images of what? Of decay, of decomposition, especially of dead bodies. Worms are parasitic creatures. They're parasites that feed on a host for their survival. As long as the host survives, the parasitic worm survives because it can feed on that host. So when Jesus speaks of hell's never-ending time frame of punishment, he's speaking of the worm not dying because the host never dies. People that want to argue that hell features some sort of annihilation they have a problem with this because the worm doesn't die because the host that the worm is feeding on never dies. The fire is never quenched because God's fury is never satisfied. The unquenchable fire pictures the wrath of God being unleashed like a roaring inferno of God's fury on hell's unrepentant, rebellious, sinful inhabitants. And let me make this point too. 
Hell is a place of punishment. It's not a place of rehabilitation. In some people's minds, they think that God should let people out of hell because they will repent in hell. They'll realize the errors of their ways. The Bible does not describe that in any way, shape, or form. It says that the filthy will stay filthy and the clean will stay clean. It's talking about people being sent to hell. And we'll see this in the scripture that we considered this morning. People that are sent to hell don't get there um, to be rehabilitated. They're not sent there to be fixed. They're sent there to be punished. Hell is a punitive place. It's not a remedial place. So the fire is not quenched because the people in hell never glorify God. They never repent. That time for repentance has passed. That ship has sailed. They spend their eternity shaking their fist at God in rebellion towards him with regret, with sorrow, with anger. So Jesus speaks in the Gospel of Mark, and he sternly warns his disciples to avoid hell at all costs. Now let's look at Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16 is where we're going to spend most of our time this morning. Luke 16, verses 19 to 31. This is an important passage because we get the only eyewitness account of hell in Scripture from this passage. You have an eyewitness account from someone in hell. Now, this is a parable. And there's some debate about that. We'll talk about that a little bit. But it's a parable designed to warn us about hell. And the person in hell is giving a firsthand testimony of what it's like to be there. So I think it deserves our attention. Luke chapter 16, <clears throat> look at verse 19. Again, this is Jesus speaking. The one who speaks the most about hell is our Savior. Verse 19 says, There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment." Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. 
And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. This is an amazing and powerful portion of scripture from the lips of Jesus himself. Given enough time, we could spend a couple of weeks going through this passage. But we're, we're just going to really scratch the surface. I want to provide a good synopsis, a solid synopsis of what these verses convey to us as we consider what the Bible tells us about hell. As I mentioned earlier, hell is a very common subject about which Jesus preached and taught throughout his years of ministry as chronicled by the Gospels. This passage in particular, though, gives us some intriguing insight from our Lord himself of a firsthand account of someone in hell. Before we dive into the details of this passage, it's important that we consider again the context in which it's presented. This account from Jesus is given in the context of him teaching his disciples that you can't serve two masters. If you look earlier in chapter 16 at the beginning, Jesus says, you can't serve two masters. You can't serve God and money. Only one of the two will hold first place in your heart. This account of the rich man and Lazarus is also given in the immediate context of, of Jesus confronting the Pharisees, who Luke explicitly tells us in verse 14 were lovers of money. The Pharisees thought that their Jew, Jewish lineage, their knowledge of God's law, their publicly performed good deeds, those were going to be enough to justify them in God's eyes. They were going to have a home in heaven because they went to the synagogue every day or because they gave money to the synagogue, or because they did good things, or because they were rich and blessed by God. Jesus bluntly confronts the scoffing Pharisees by saying that God knew their sinful hearts, and that the Old Testament's law and prophets testified to the fact that their good deeds and their physical lineage would not give them any free pass from God's judgment for their sins. So after teaching that you can't serve God in wealth, and after asserting that the lineage and good deeds that you may have earn you nothing in terms of salvation, Jesus gives us this account of the rich man and Lazarus to further explain and elaborate on those teachings. We see throughout the Gospels that Jesus is a master storyteller. He uses amazing, stark contrasts to tell the story. And he uses surprises and shocking twists to help us understand what he's trying to teach us. Now again, as I mentioned, there are some who think this passage is not a parable because one of the characters has a name, Lazarus. We're going to talk about that. I think there are a few clues here that clearly indicate that this is a parable. And I'll try to explain a little bit of why I think Lazarus is given that name. But again, let's look at the passage, Luke 16, 19 through 21. It begins with that very first sentence. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen. That's a very common way for Jesus to introduce his parables. Look at the beginning of chapter 16. Jesus said to his disciples, there was a certain rich man, right? Every time that he introduced the story, he had a, a pretty 
uh, customary way of introducing that story. There was a certain rich man who had two sons, whatever. Those were very common for him to use with his parables. So that's one of the reasons I think this is a parable. Verse 19 says there was a, a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and in fine linen, and he fared sumptuously. This rich man is the main character. He does most of the talking throughout this parable. He's the focus of the story, and he's the one that we see in hell later on. The focus of the parable is what he experiences and how he processes it. In biblical times, wearing purple was a sign of royalty. It was a sign of being extremely wealthy. The rich man not only dressed very well, but it says that he fared sumptuously. That means he lived extravagantly. He had a wealthy, luxurious lifestyle, and he lived that way every single day. I think this is, again, Jesus having a parable with two stark contrasts. On one side, you have a man who lived it up. He took everything out of the world that he could, and he, he lived to the height of, of the riches that he had. Verses 20 to 21 give us the other side. The other end of the spectrum tells us about a beggar named Lazarus. It says in verse 20, there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. Again, immediately contrasted with the rich man, this poor beggar is the polar opposite. He is full of sores, he's homeless, he's completely helpless, and he's begging for anything to eat. It's important to note that this fictional Lazarus is not the historical Lazarus named in John 11 as being the, the brother of Mary and Martha. That was a real man who was dead for four days that Jesus rose from the, the grave. This Lazarus in this story is a made-up Lazarus. Back to the rich man. He has everything. He has plenty of food. He has fine clothes. He has a luxurious lifestyle. Pr probably means he has lots of friends. And there's no indication that, that he's sick or diseased in any way. This poor man has nothing. He has no food. He has tattered clothes. He has poor health. He has no one to care for him. And he is extremely needy. The poor man is so weak and so pathetic that he'd be willing to eat anything at all, even the garbage scraps from the rich man's table. Jesus says that the poor man was laid, and if you look at the language, the Greek language, it actually means he was dumped at this gate. And it wasn't just any gate, it was a stately gate. No doubt to try and receive any crumb of sustenance that he could muster from the rich man. But even with that, the rich man totally ignores Lazarus. He allows him to die as the mongrel dogs near his house lick the oozing wounds and sores of that poor beggar. In every way, Jesus depicts the beggar to be pathetic, loathsome, odious, and as wretched as possible in the eyes of his audience, primarily the Pharisees. 
Jesus is primarily speaking to the Pharisees because the Pharisees thought they were headed for heaven. They were rich. They were blessed. They had everything they could ever want. God was clearly blessing them. They were of the, the, the line of Abraham. So there's no doubt that they're going to heaven. And Jesus is trying to explain to them, no, you're just like the rich man. You're headed for hell. Jesus is speaking to them, and he's trying to paint this picture of contrast so that they see how wretched Lazarus is, but where Lazarus ends up is much better than the rich man. Let's look at their experiences in death. Look at verses 22 and 23. It says, So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. This is where Jesus used a startling twist. And he does this in almost all of his parables to shock the audience into what's going on here. The beggar dies and he's carried off by angels to somewhere called Abraham's bosom. Who's Abraham? Abraham is the forefather and the hero of the Jewish race. He's known as the father of faith because of the account of his life in the book of Genesis, testifying to the fact that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. The reference of Abraham's bosom is not a technical term. There are some commentators that think this is a special place in heaven or something like that. It's simply a way to indicate that the beggar died and was carried off from earth to heaven. And being carried to Abraham's bosom means that the beggar wasn't just in the outskirts of heaven, looking over someone's shoulder to seeing what was going on. He was in a place of honor. He was at the side of the forefather of the Jewish race, the father of faith. He was in a place of honor next to the hero of Jewish history. The rich man dies and he's simply buried, which implies that he was probably given some sort of dignity of a ceremony to celebrate his luxurious and extravagant life. The beggar doesn't have a burial. But an absolutely stunning reversal of fortunes occurs in verse 23 because the rich man finds himself in torments in Hades or hell while the beggar is seen comfortably seated at Abraham's side in heaven. This would have shocked the Pharisees. Why in the world would a well-respected rich man end up in torments in hell and an odious, disgusting beggar named Lazarus end up in the lap of luxury next to Abraham in heaven? That's scandalous in their eyes. Well, let's look at their experiences in the afterlife for some answers. Verse 24, then he cried, this is the rich man, cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in the water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. The rich man calls on Father Abraham, which probably indicates that he was a Jew. 
calls on the heroic and hopefully sympathetic ancestor of his, Abraham, for a little help. I need a little help, Abraham. Can you help me here? It's important to note, I want to make this crystal clear. The rich man doesn't try to argue that he doesn't belong there. He doesn't try to say, I shouldn't be here. This is a mistake. Somebody did something wrong. I should not be in hell. He never says that. The rich man fully accepts the fact that he deserves to suffer in hell. What the rich man asks for is just one thing, just a moment's relief from hell's torturous flames. The man who refused to give Lazarus a crumb from his table is now begging Lazarus to be dispatched from heaven to just give him a drip of water. He wouldn't give a crumb, now he just wants a drip of water. You see the contrast? You see what Jesus is doing here in this parable? He's showing us how torturous hell is and the fact that it's never-ending. The rich man's desperate request is denied because there is a great gulf or chasm fixed between heaven and hell, and no one is permitted to pass from one to the other. The rich man is told that he received good things in his life, Lazarus received bad things in his life, but now death has reversed their fortunes. Their eternal destinies are different than what their lives were here on earth, so that Lazarus is comforted and the rich man is tortured. So, what happens now? In verses 27 through 31, having been denied relief, the rich man makes one desperate final plea. He decides to make one final request of his beloved ancestor Abraham in an attempt to prevent his brothers from being condemned to hell like him. He asks if that lowly beggar could be dispatched in heaven instead to earth to warn his brothers about the reality of hell so that they can do whatever is necessary to avoid this horrific place. The rich man is denied. And he's denied because they already have Moses and the prophets, which is a reference to the Old Testament's law and prophetic writings about the Messiah and the coming judgment of sin. The rich man argues his brothers need more proof. They need more information. He insists that someone like Lazarus could convince his brothers of the realities of hell because Lazarus was a man who was alive and dead and would be risen again. Finally, the rich man is denied once again. He's told that if his brothers refuse to hear and believe the law and the prophets of the scriptures, then nothing will convince them. Even if they see a man rise from the dead. So what can we learn from this parable? There are a couple of things to keep in mind. First, with every passage of scripture, it's important to always compare scripture with scripture to ensure that you don't draw away conclusions that aren't supported by other correctly interpreted passages. For example, I used Mark chapter 9 to show us that hell is a place where their worm does not die. The flame is not quenched. We get that same picture in this parable. This man is suffering. He's consciously suffering in hell forever. 
There are no other scriptures that show people in hell seeing, finding, or speaking with people in heaven. So again, this is another reason why I think this is a parable. This is a, a literary device that Jesus uses to convey his intended lesson. He gives us a glimpse into this conversation between hell and heaven so that we understand that hell is a real place where real people suffer for eternity. That's the reason for the conversation. Second, it's always important to remember to interpret this parable in light of the context in which it's found. We said that Jesus told this parable after he taught that you cannot serve both God and wealth. And after asserting that someone's physical lineage and good deeds cannot earn them salvation. The Pharisees in the audience thought they were headed for heaven because God had blessed them with great wealth, prominent positions in society. They were descendants of Abraham. So they thought that meant God was pleased with how they were living. That was not the case. Jesus told this story so that the Pharisees would hopefully identify themselves with the rich man who ended up in torments in hell. He wanted them to realize they were on a road to hell, not a road to heaven. This parable certainly reinforces the fact that Lazarus the beggar did nothing to earn his salvation into heaven. We don't hear much about the beggar because the rich man is the main character of the story. But what we do know about the beggar is that it doesn't say anything that he did to earn his way into heaven. And now we have the reason why he's given a name. The name Lazarus was a common name in biblical times in the days of Jesus. But it's important to note that the word, the name Lazarus means God has helped. That beggar made it to heaven because God helped him. The rich man may have been a prominent and important man with his wealth and extravagant living, but in hell, he was a worthless nobody. He had no name. He was nameless, and he was a lost soul for the rest of eternity. The pathetically poor Lazarus was discarded and forgotten like roadkill on earth, but he had a name and a prominent position in heaven because God helped him. This leads us to the third and probably the most important point. What's the purpose of this parable? Jesus told this parable, he used its literary devices of people talking in heaven and hell to teach us that hell is a real place of eternal torment that must be avoided at all costs. Along with that, Jesus provided us with the way that we can avoid hell and set a new course for heaven instead. The way to heaven is found in the words of Jesus by hearing Moses and the prophets, namely, by reading, understanding, and heeding the words of God's word, the Bible. You may ask, what does that look like in real life? That's in a parable, but what does heeding the word of God look like in real life? Well, Luke's gospel gives us the perfect picture. Our last passage to consider is Luke chapter 23. Very quickly, we'll, we'll look at this and wrap up. In Luke 23, verse 32. This is the crucifixion of our Lord. 
In verse 32, it says, There were two others, along with Jesus, criminals, led with him to be put to death. When they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they did not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. And the people stood looking on. But even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine and saying, If you're the king of, of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him saying, do you not even fear God, seeing that you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Of the four gospel writers, Luke alone provides us with this amazing account of the penitent criminal. Here we see Jesus, the suffering servant of God, being crucified. Just as he predicted time and again to his disciples, he's being crucified between two criminals, one on each side of him. Matthew, Mark both tell us that both criminals reviled and insulted Jesus as they hung there. But here, Luke offers a little extra detail. He further shows us that one of those criminals, after hanging there with the sinless Savior, Son of God, insulting him, he realized that Jesus was innocent. He realized that Jesus was truly the Son of God, that he was the King of the Jews as he claimed to be, when that criminal realized who Jesus was. He repented of his sinful words, and he put his eternal destiny in the hands of Jesus. In verse 40, the penitent, penitent criminal recognizes that God is holy and just and is to be feared by sinners like him. In verse 41, the penitent criminal admits that his sinful deeds deserve condemnation and death, but that Jesus had done nothing sinful to deserve any of the punishment that he was receiving. In verse 42, the penitent criminal expresses his belief in Jesus by calling on him to be his Lord and asking Jesus to remember him when he arrives in his kingdom. Jesus confirmed that man's genuine faith by responding with the most blessed words ever heard by any sinful man. Assuredly, I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. <clears throat> the criminal who was moments away from waking up in torments in hell changed his eternal destiny from hell to heaven by admitting his sin, by believing in Jesus, and committing his life to following Jesus the rest of his brief life. 
So, what about you? Where are you headed today? Yesterday was the 20th anniversary of September 11th, 2001. It was the worst terrorist attack on human soil. On the morning of September 11th, 2,977 people awoke and did not have death on their day planner. There were 2,977 people, souls, that were ushered into eternity unexpectedly. The Bible says that all of us will leave this earth and that none of us are in charge of where or when. Some of us in this room today could be ushered into eternity within the hour. We don't know. Have you thought about your departure from this earth? Have you thought about not where you're going to be tonight or tomorrow or even next week? Have you thought about where you'll be 100 years from now? Where will your soul be 100 years from today? Are you like the rich man who thought that because he was religious and he went to church, he was blessed by God, he had material things, that he was headed up to go to heaven, and in fact he ended up in hell? If you think you're headed for heaven, why do you think you're headed there? What are you counting on to gain entry into heaven? Do you think that hell is only for sinners who are worse than you? I've got news for you. Hell is only for everyone who has sinned. And heaven is for perfect people. How do I become perfect? Through the blood of Jesus Christ. Please understand today that Jesus and the rest of Scripture testifies to the fact that everyone in this room, everyone hearing this message, everyone on this earth is a sinner who deserves to spend eternity and hell. Our default destination is not heaven. That's not a popular message today. People go to funerals. A lot of times you'll say they're in a better place. And unfortunately, in a lot of cases, that's not true. Because if you die in your sin, you're not in a better place. You're in a worse place. You're in the worst place of all. All sinners are headed for hell because God is holy. He must judge all sin. And the wages of the paycheck for our sin, what we deserve for our sin, is death. It is eternal death. It is the second death. Eternal separation from God. Now, some of you may have issues with this, and we could spend a whole other message talking about why does hell exist? Why does God send people to hell? You can wonder all you want. But the scriptures are clear. Sinners deserve hell. Jesus explained that Moses and the prophets plainly tell us that all of us fall short of God's perfect standards. If you still think you're a good person who deserves to go to heaven when you die, just look at the Ten Commandments. Look at Exodus 20. Have you ever lied? Have you ever stolen? Have you ever disobeyed your parents? Have you ever used the Lord's name in vain as a curse word? If so, when God judges you on Judgment Day, will you be found guilty or innocent? 
If you're guilty of sin, then hell is your destination. As we saw with the penitent criminal, Jesus Christ, God's sinless son, came to earth on a rescue mission to save you from hell. But you must repent. In order to avoid hell, you have to turn from your sin and turn to the Savior, just like that penitent criminal did. He changed his eternal destiny from hell to heaven when he believed and heeded the words of the Bible. That penitent criminal believed the law and the prophets by admitting his guilt and confessing his sin before God. That penitent criminal believed the law and the prophets and Jesus himself, that Jesus was God's son, who lived a perfect life, he would die to absorb the punishment of any believer and follower of him, and that he would rise again. The penitent criminal expressed all that in one brief verse. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. He was expressing his faith in Jesus Christ. Finally, that penitent criminal repented of his sins and committed to making Jesus Christ the Lord and master of the rest of his brief life. If you're here today, hearing this word of God in person or online, I would urge you to listen to the warnings of Jesus himself. Avoid hell at all costs. Don't assume that you're headed for heaven, only to find out, like that nameless rich man, that you wake up in hell after you leave this earth. The Bible is clear. All of us are going to live forever, either in heaven or in hell. It's only by heeding the warnings and instruction of the scripture and obeying the gospel command to make Jesus Christ the master and savior of our lives that we can be saved from God's wrath. I'll end with the words of Jesus. I'll let him have the last words. Matthew 16, 24. Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? The decision is yours. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, your word is very sobering. It's very serious. It's powerful. And Father, I pray that people hearing this message will consider what you have for them now and in eternity. I pray that decisions for Christ will be made according to your will. For those who need to be saved, for those who need to repent of their sins and make Jesus Christ the Lord of their lives, I pray that they will make those decisions right now. Because a decision to delay is a decision to reject. I pray that those who need to be saved will turn to Christ, just like that penitent criminal. Make him the Lord of their lives. Seal their destiny in heaven, for those of us who are saved, I pray that we would have a burden, just like Jesus did, to tell people that they are headed for hell unless Jesus Christ is the Lord of their lives. Help us to be 
burdened with the responsibility to be zealous to tell others about Jesus Christ. Decisions need to be made for you, Lord. I pray that they'll be made according to your will. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. As everyone stands, Andrew's going to lead us in song of invitation. This is an invitation for you to obey the gospel command. If you need to make a decision for Christ, I urge you to do so. Brother Andrew. we're dismissed today i just wanted to remind everyone of a few announcements the first is uh, i believe tonight there will be facebook live is that correct pastor roger seven o'clock so uh, there'll be facebook live tonight tomorrow night at seven real life which is the uh, college and career class that's our class we'll be meeting at seven o'clock um, then wednesday we have our family nights at 6 30 and finally to round out the week thursday night at seven we have grief share here at the church so if you've been blessed to be here this morning, would you say amen? amen. All right, you are dismissed.
Finding myself at a loss for words And the funny thing is, it's okay The last thing I need is to be heard But to hear what you would say Finding myself 